this passage is uh, one of those passages in the book of Acts that I would sort of skip over as a younger person. I would sort of read through and go, ah, so some people went to a city and did a thing and there's some prophecy and right, moving on. Uh, but as I dug into it this week and going, wow, this is, this is a great passage uh, for a couple of reasons, because I think it actually takes us through a couple of different stages of church planting and the characteristics of, of, of people that are needed. And so as we continue to think about planting a new church, being part of a new, a baby church, it's still early days, uh, this is actually really helpful for us to look at together and to go, okay, what are the stages? Who are the kinds of people? Or to put it a different way, what kind of people do we need to aim at being as well? <clears throat> and as Jesus' disciples, full of the Spirit, we are called, and we have a role to play in each of these three stages. Some perhaps are more gifted in each one or the other of these stages. Some of us are more comfortable in one or the others of those stages. But actually, we are all called to play a part in each one. We're going we're to look at that a little bit this morning. Bonjour, mon frère. Ça va? Met a new friend in the street, speaks French. Oh, the Lord is good. Glad to have you with us. <laughs> um, Darren, thanks for picking him up. Um, so let's look at this passage together. Um, verse 19, the first thing, the first characteristic, the first stage, let's do the first stage first. The first stage is birth. That's the first thing we see in verses 19 through 21. And the characteristic of the people who are involved in birthing this church are that they are willing to cross boundaries. They're willing to cross boundaries. And they've got a particular ministry here. Do you notice what it, what it is? It's the ministry of evangelism. Luke writes in verse 19, Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Peter traveled as far as Phoenicia and so on. And they were speaking the word to who? To Jews. And later on, they, they, some of them actually spoke it to Hellenists, to Greek-speaking people, people who lived in Antioch, who had come from around the world. Antioch was a diverse place, kind of like our city. Probably about the same size, actually. <laughs> Maybe a little smaller, even. It was a big city for the time, though. And so they had this ministry of evangelism, and they crossed boundaries. The first boundary that they crossed, sort of in, in spite of themselves, you'll notice, is that they were scattered because of what? persecution. So they crossed boundaries. They went north out of Jerusalem. This is sort of happening at the same time as it, there's this time period after chapter 8. Paul comes in, Saul, sorry, comes in and persecutes the early church and they scattered. And the first story we get out of that scattering is Philip who goes down into Samaria. We looked at that in chapter uh, 10 last week. Another story is we get about Saul being his conversion. We also get in chapter 10, we get the story of Peter and Cornelius, and the first Gentile, actually it was the Ethiopian was the first Gentile, but the really, really important Gentile becoming a, a believer, becoming a disciple in Cornelius. And now, because of that same persecution, other disciples went north, and they arrived in Antioch. So they were scattered through geographical boundaries. For us, as we think about our city, that might, mean, that might mean not so much going to a different city or going very far, but going to a different part of the city. I've discovered where I'm from in New Jersey, um, 
Local is about within an hour and a half drive. That's local. But here in our city, uh, actually, if I go about halfway around the city, that's actually not local. I'm out of my area all of a sudden. And most people sort of stay in their area. Our areas, what's local is much more restricted. And so actually for us, crossing boundaries, and sometimes that happens naturally out of choice. You go, I'm going to do this. The Lord's calling me. I'm going to go here. Sometimes it happens because you get a job in a different area or because something else happens. You're scattered. Some of us come from different parts of the world. You've been scattered through no, perhaps some of it was your own desire. Perhaps some of it was the Lord at work, but he's put you where you are. He's scattered you geographically. He's, sorry, he's, he's, you crossed geographical boundaries. But you notice there was a second boundary that was crossed as well. Initially, in verse 19, those who had left, those disciples who had left Jerusalem, spoke the word to no one except Jews. They were Jews, whether they were Gentile, they were born, born a Greek-speaking Jew or a, or a Hebrew-speaking Jew, they were Jews, and they went, and as they went, they preached to the word to those most natural to them to reach, other Jews. But at some point, men of Cyprus, in verse 20, and men of Cyrene, they arrived in Antioch, oh, crossroads of the ancient world, People, Greek-speaking peoples from across the empire were there. And they thought, let's try a new thing. We don't quite know whether they knew about Cornelius and Peter yet. It sort of seems like it just sort of, it sort of happened very naturally. If Jesus is good for us and he's good for other Jews, maybe he's good for these Greek-speaking folks over here as well. It was kind of a, it was kind of a, a spontaneous thing, I suspect. We've met some of them. We live next to them. We care about them. We want to share Jesus with them. And so they not only crossed geographical boundaries, but they also crossed cultural or perhaps ethnic or perhaps worldview boundaries. They started speaking the gospel to those who were different from them. It's, it's much easier. And we need to, we, as, as, a, as a church, as, as followers of Jesus, we need to speak the gospel, we need to speak about Jesus to both those who are easy for us to reach and those who are more difficult. So what I mean by that is more difficult to reach are those where you have to cross more boundaries. You have to cross geographical and linguistic and ethnic and cultural and worldview boundaries. There's a lot more explaining and talking that needs to be done in order for them to understand Jesus. We get a really good picture of that in the book of Acts. When Peter, he, 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 Acts chapter 2, he stands up and he preaches after Pentecost to all of the Jews who are there. And he starts with what? The Old Testament. He starts with the prophets. In other places, they start with the law. But actually, if we look at Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 17, when he's in Athens, he's speaking to, to Greeks, and he doesn't start with Scripture at all. In fact, he says, you guys are really religious. You've got a lot of idols. In fact, you've got one who's an idol to an unknown God. So careful are you to make sure that you haven't forgotten anyone. You've got an idol to an unknown God. Can I talk to you about the God you don't know? Oh, what a brilliant intro to Jesus. You see the difference? Are you tracking with me? There's, there's more, there's boundaries. We're called to cross boundaries, geographic ones, and there's cultural worldview ones that are, they take a little more thought to, 
to cross. How do you explain sin to someone who doesn't have the idea of sin in their worldview? Or a, a very different concept of sin. If you talk to a Hindu, they, they have sin, but it's not at all like biblical sin. But sin is, key, is a key part of understanding the gospel. So there's boundaries to cross. And so these guys, they came in, and there was a church that was birthed in verse, 20, verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. Let's never forget, friends, that we're not going to accomplish anything unless the hand of our God is with us. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed, and they turned to the Lord. It's a great phrase. A great number who believed turned to the Lord. There's, there's two steps to that. They believed, they were convinced that the gospel was the truth, but then they turned away from whatever they were trusting previously, and they turned to Jesus. There was a church that was birthed through this willingness to cross boundaries. I say willingness. They needed a bit of a nudge to get out of Jerusalem. But they crossed boundaries. I just want to point out to you that cities are a key thing. They came to Antioch. Antioch would actually become, it would overtake Jerusalem as the center of Christian activity until they got to Rome. They started in Jerusalem. They got to Antioch. Antioch, this church in Antioch, we're going to spend two weeks on it, I think. And it quickly became the hub of Christian activity, of sending missionaries out. But the goal was then Rome, the biggest city. Why? Because cities are key people, key places. More than 50% of people in the world globally live in cities now. I forget what the exact number is. More than half of people live in a city somewhere. And cities are growing around the world. Uh, Tim Keller, who some of you might know, done a lot of stuff on church planting. And they, they've done some studies and they've also got some, 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 some uh, anecdotal evidence that says that actually if, if we have 10, one church for every 10,000 people, 1% of the population attends church. When there's about a, one church for every 1,000 people, between 15 and 20% of people attend church. But when we get to one church for every 500 people, it jumps to 40%. So it's not a linear model, it's exponential. We need to keep multiplying churches. That's why for us as City Church, we keep saying, there, for a city of the size of Wolverhampton, there aren't enough solid, gospel, healthy churches where disciples can grow. That's why we're church planting. We don't want to just see one church planted. We want to see lots of churches planted because there's a quarter of a million people in this city. And actually more because it sort of spreads out and runs into Birmingham as well. One church for every 500 people. 40% of people end up in church. Cities are key, key places. Who, who preached the gospel to you? Who was that person who crossed that boundary? Sometimes those boundaries are easy to cross. If it was a parent who preached the gospel to you, that's, a, that's not a hard boundary. There's still a boundary. There's still perhaps some spiritual resistance to actually preaching the gospel. There's parent-child um, interactions that can be difficult. But who, who preached the gospel to you? What boundaries did they cross? It's worth thinking about. It's worth thanking that person again, whoever they were. 
And my ongoing question to each of us, and I keep challenging myself with this as well, is who, who, who are the people that God has put around you that you need to reach out to? Who are the people he's put around you that you need to reach out? What boundaries do you actually need to cross to be able to speak to them? If it's colleagues at work, there might be protocol boundaries that you have to figure out and navigate. It's worth thinking those through. We can cross boundaries, but some are easier than others. What boundaries, who is the Lord calling you to reach out to? What boundaries do you need to cross in order to reach them? And one last little question there is, are there people that we're missing? Are there people that are in, our, in your, our blind spot? Churches I've been familiar with, they're really focused on reaching a particular group of people. But actually, there's another group right underneath their, their noses, but they've just missed them. Who's in our blind spot? Who's in your blind spot? Who do you walk past every day and it's never thought, you've never thought, oh, that person needs the gospel. It might not be you who shares it with them. It might be somebody else, but just the, to have the vision for it. To see those people that God is calling to himself. They crossed, they were willing to cross boundaries in the birth stage. The second stage, uh, I've called it the adolescent stage. Starting in verse 22. Uh, and here, what we see is people who are willing to invest, invest time, invest their own blood, sweat, and tears. They're willing to invest. And they've got two particular ministries. We see that through Barnabas and then through Saul. The first is Barnabas has this ministry of encouragement, and Saul has this ministry of teaching. And so they invest in the congregation. And I love these verses about Barnabas. The report in verse 22 of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. It's the mother church in that sense. Because that's where those disciples came from. And the daughter church in Antioch has been planted. It's there. Many turned to the Lord. And so the report of it came to Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas. They could not have chosen a better man to send to see what was happening with this this revival in Antioch. Not even a revival, a new, a new thing. They sent Barnabas. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. We met Barnabas, if you remember, back in chapter 4. We first encounter him because he was one of the ones who sold off a piece of property and laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet so that they could care for the widows. And it says that Barnabas, he had another name. I can't recall what it is just now. But his name means son of encouragement. We get a wonderful definition of what encouragement is right here. He saw the grace of God at work in these new disciples and he was glad. Brothers and sisters, we need to be people of encouragement. Some of us are actually really gifted in it. But we need to all work at that. Church plants desperately need encouragement. Not just for me, for all of us. And that's what this is what encouragement is. To see the grace of God. To see God's hand at work in their lives. To see where he's been shaping and molding them. Have you ever had someone come up to you and, and, and you're talking and they say, I've seen, you've changed. God's been at work in your life. It's amazing. I'm pumped for you. I'm excited. I'm so glad. Yeah. 
We can have that ministry to one another. Now, now so that, that means actually that we need to know each other well, that we need to be sharing our lives together so that we can actually see, oh, this is how, this is how you were before and this is how you are now. God's been at work in your life. That's sometimes why we'll do testimonies, have people share testimonies at some point. God's been doing something in your life so that we can be encouraged and encourage one another. Barnabas saw the grace of God in their lives and he was glad. I've got some people that I'm walking alongside at the minute and I've seen the, the work of God in their lives. And man, I get pumped. I'm excited. God's at work. And the crazy thing is he changes me as I'm walking alongside them. It's kind of circular. Barnabas has a ministry of encouragement. Uh, I was trying to think of a time when I've been really encouraged. The story that came to my mind um, is what I used to play baseball growing up. And uh, my nickname as a kid was Charlie because that was my dad's nickname. And it was his nickname because... They had the Charlie stoppers on the doors, and his parents called him Charlie, and so I got called Charlie as well. Charlie Brown, Charlie Nagy, he was a baseball pitcher. I was called Charlie, and my dad would stand on the sidelines of the base of the baseball pitch. I didn't go, come on, Charlie! And all my teammates would go, who's Charlie? Because they didn't know that. Who's, who's Charlie? And there was this one game where I'd, I'd pitched a long time. I was the pitcher. I threw the ball. My arm was tired, and I was exhausted. And my teammates had figured out who Charlie was. And so the whole bench was standing there going, come on, Charlie, with English accents. It was fantastic. I was encouraged. I, pers- I kept on going. I was exhorted to keep going. And that's the second thing that Barnabas does here. He not only recognizes the grace of God in their lives, but he says to them, he, he exhorts them. In verse 23, he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord. They live in a diverse city, a city that was, that was the, the cities in those days had reputations that Antioch didn't have a good reputation. It was a, it was a hard city to be a Jesus follower in. And he says, hey, you found Jesus. Keep on. Don't give up. Keep following hard after Jesus. He's worth following. Keep gathering together. He exhorts them to remain Faithful. And then I love verse 24. Why did he do that? Why did he have that ministry of encouragement? For he was a good man. It's such a simple thing. But to be called a good man or a good woman. He's the only one, I think, in the book of Acts who's called a good man. A man who, because he's full of the Spirit... He recognizes God's hand at work in others. He calls it out. He says, yes, it's good. Keep on. He's a good man. The challenge for myself of that is, would would someone look at me and say, yeah, he's a good man. He's an encourager. Who can you encourage? Who around you needs to be encouraged? Perhaps you're someone who needs to be encouraged, but who can you encourage this next week? Who can you look at and say, I could see God at work in your life? Really practically, if you have got a spouse, if you've got kids, that's a worthy ministry to your family. I can see God's hand at work, His grace in your life. 
keep on. Perhaps there's someone in the church. If you don't have a family, who can you encourage? Someone else, perhaps. Someone at work. Someone in the church. Barnabas had a ministry of encouragement. And the second ministry here that's really key is the ministry of Saul. You'll notice that even more people were added because of Barnabas's ministry in verse 23, sorry, verse 24. And so as more disciples are coming on, Barnabas had a second role. He went to Tarsus looking for Paul. If you look at the map, Antioch's here, Mediterranean's here, sorry, the Mediterranean is here, Antioch's here, and Tarsus is just around the corner. And so he went up to Tarsus because he knew that's where Saul was because, you see, Barnabas had met Saul before. And actually, back in chapter 9, if you turn there, verses 26 and 27, we see Barnabas' ministry to Saul as well, that same son of encouragement at work again. Saul has been converted. He's become a follower of Jesus. And he goes and he tries to join the church at Jerusalem, but he's rejected. Everyone's afraid of him. And so who steps in? In verse 27, but Barnabas took Saul and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And Barnabas knows about Paul's, about Saul. He's not, he's not been called, started being called Saul, Paul yet. Saul, Barnabas knows about Saul's call to the Gentiles. But he had rescued Saul before in that sense. He'd brought him into the church. He'd had that ministry of see God's work in Saul's life. This is what God's done. He's been preaching for Jesus. He loves Jesus. He's a follower like us. He's a disciple. And so now Barnabas goes to Tarsus to find Saul because he knows about Saul's call. And he brings him back. He brings him back to Antioch to teach with him, to teach these young disciples. And that's the second thing. As, 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 a, as a young church, our prayer, our hope is to see this place filled with people who have believed in Jesus for the first time. Amen? That's our prayer. And so at some point, if the Lord is with us, and it might be slow, it might be fast, we don't know. I keep praying about it. I hope you're praying about it as well. We're going to have a bunch of young disciples who are, they've, they've had new birth, they're, they're disciples, but actually they're adolescents in their faith. They need teaching and encouragement. Guess who's going to do that? Us guys. That's our ministry. As new disciples come in, as people follow Jesus for the first time, they need encouragement and they need teaching. Teaching is different from preaching. Preaching has this idea of heralding. It's the town crier who stands up and says, hear ye, hear ye. It's the guy who stands up at the front and says, this is what it says. Teaching is, you walk away afterwards and you go, he said this. He said, this is what the Bible says, but what does that mean? Ah, teaching. Now we need some teaching. Here's, it's explaining. It's bringing understanding. And so Saul comes to teach, to help them understand what it looks like, what, what, what Jesus, the fullness of what it means of Jesus' death and resurrection, what all of that means, the theological stuff, and the, but also the practical applications. How do, you, how do you live as a Christian now? What does that mean? We see that in all of the epistles. 
And in the book of Ephesians, for example, he starts with, this is what Jesus did, this is what it means, and now here's how you ought to live. That's what he walked through with the disciples in Antioch. Teaching. And that teaching happened for over a year, it says in verse 26. For a whole year they met with the church. Friends, I want to paint a picture for us because I, th- I think that, that what actually is what they did was probably a mix of quantity and quality of time. It was both informal and formal. It was structured and unstructured time. It was all of that stuff. So for us, one of the things we've been talking about is one-to-one Bible reading. We've got some books. You can come. I think I've got them with me this morning if you want one. To be able to get together with someone and just say, hey, let's read through... Let's read through the Gospel of Mark. Let's read through the book of James or, or a different book. That book gives you a little bit of the tools of how to do it. You start reading Scripture together. And especially if you're with a, a, someone who's not a believer or someone who is a young believer, actually, in one sense, sometimes that's just an excuse to get together. We want to gather around Jesus. But actually, we end up talking about managing finances and relationship stuff and other things. And then you pray for one another. And all of a sudden, you're doing unstructured discipleship. Mentoring someone. But then in the fall, we're hoping, or sorry, in February, we're hoping to do Christianity Explored. It's a, it's a course for people who want to know more about Jesus. But it's a little more formal. It's a little more structured. We need both of those things. And I suspect that's what Paul and Barnabas did. They gave a year of their lives teaching, mentoring, discipling, structured, unstructured, formal, informal of these folks, gathering with them, ecclesying with them, if you will. They preached and they taught. Sorry, they they encouraged and they taught. And the result, I love this verse, at the end of verse 26, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The result of the encouragement and the teaching was that they had a sense of common identity. This group of People from all over the world who had come to Antioch for various reasons, work, commerce, persecution, whatever, they were there. There was nothing that, that made them... That, most of the time in our world, we get together on the basis of common interests, on the basis of common culture, ethnicity, all of those things. That's the, we, there's things in common. But this group of Christians, this group of disciples was so diverse that the most obvious thing that they had in common was Jesus. And actually, it was probably an insult. Antioch was actually known for its, its insults. That's not a great reputation to have as a city, but there it is. And so it was likely an insult, little Christs, Christ people, Jesus people, Jesus freaks. There's a song I used to listen to in high school called Jesus Freak by a group called DC Talk. If I'm going to be hated, let it be because of Jesus. If I'm going to appear strange and weird, let it be because of Jesus, not because I'm, well, I'm a bit strange, so. But let it be because of Jesus. If I'm going to be liked and loved, let it be because of Jesus. These folks were recognized by Jesus. It was an insult, but actually, they said, actually, that's about it. We are Jesus' people. That's who we are. Cool. We're Christians. They had a new identity together as a local church, as the body of Christ, before the city. And they owned it. 
sometimes disciples get stuck in this adolescence. We have the same phenomenon in our culture, the, the rise of eternal adolescence. 35 is the new 18 or whatever it is. We get, people get stuck in adolescence. We can get spiritually stuck in adolescence. We get stuck in that, in, in that I need to be taught and encouraged and taught and encouraged. Don't get me wrong. Getting taught and encouraged is a good and needed thing. But we get stuck in that. We don't move on to the next phase. We're going to talk about that in a minute. We need to keep growing in the Lord and actually have ministry ourselves. Who encouraged you and taught you in spiritual adolescence? Who did that for you? Saul and Barnabas did that for the church at Antioch. Who can you encourage? Who can you, who can you teach? It's the ministry of coming alongside someone, doing life together, Who's that, who's that person for you? It's different than an evangelism. It's we've got, young, we've got a young believer, or maybe it's a fellow believer, and we can walk alongside each other and grow together. Who can you have that minister, ministry towards? Third thing. I hope that clock's right. Third thing. Um, verse 27 through 30. A couple of interesting verses. The church, the local church needs people who are willing to let go. They're willing to let go. What I mean by that is they're willing to let young disciples grow up. Because actually we see here that these disciples are all of a sudden, they start to have ministry towards the mother church. No less. And so we see in those days, prophets came down. We've had evangelists. We've had encouragers, we've had teachers, now we've got prophets. Came down from Jerusalem, or came up to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. We can look back and go, yep, that prophecy actually was true. It it happened. That's the thing about prophecy. If you stand up and make a prophecy, it's real easy to test it. It either comes true or it doesn't. I've always thought it, had a, it took a lot of guts to stand up and say something like that. So you better, clearly Agabus was really convinced. He, somehow he knew that the Spirit was speaking through him and this was for the church. Normally, the normal way that the, the gift of prophecy is described, is used in the New Testament, is for those who speak, they speak out the mind and counsel of God. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Prophets speak out the mind and counsel of God. It's not normally associated with predicting what future events will happen. So so this is a little bit of a one-off here. And I kind of want to suggest to you that, first of all, this isn't a mandate to start making predictions to one another. We can get ourselves into trouble. But I'm not saying, saying, I don't want to put a box around the Holy Spirit, what He can and can't do. But this is not the right passage to say, I'm going to start making predictions about the future. And actually, we should be careful with it, because in the Old Testament, prophets who made false prophecies got stoned. We're not going to stone anybody, but the point is, God takes that stuff seriously. Because a lot of spiritual abuse can occur out of making prophecies. Does that make sense? You track it with me? 
But the prophets came down and they made a prophecy. And I want to suggest to you, secondly, that Luke's emphasis here is not so much on that the prophecy happened, but what the disciples did with it. So you'll notice that the three things about the prophecy. It's not, it wasn't about an individual person. It was about a set of circumstances in the wider world. There's, 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 a, there's a famine that's going to occur. It's going to happen. You notice the second thing is that they simply said what would happen. Agabus didn't tell the church what they should do. And actually, in verse 29, so the disciples determined. Who, who determined? Who, made, who decided what to do? The disciples. So Agabus stands up and says, here's what's, here, the Spirit is telling me, here's what's going to happen. And the disciples, who have been encouraged and taught, are now at a position where they can start to say, yes, we too can understand. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We can walk in the ways of God. We can understand His mind and His counsel as well. And we can actually, in verse 29, have ministry. They're sending relief to the brothers living in Judea because those brothers are now a persecuted minority in Jerusalem. The mother church is a persecuted minority. And so they said, actually, we can send relief there. Oh, that's wonderful. At some point, as a young man, my relationship with my parents changed all of a sudden they started accepting me as an equal. And actually, I could help them as well. I could minister to them as well. Did you have that change with your parents? Maybe you've got children and that's happened with them. Hopefully that's happened as they've gotten older. That's what's happening here. The daughter church is growing up and actually is going, I can minister to the mother church, to other believers. They've grown out of the adolescent phase. When did you begin to have a vision for ministry? Do you understand what I'm talking about when I talk about a vision for ministry? A sense of what God has called you to as a believer. A sense of who's around you. Who's, who God has put within reach of being able to minister to, to care for. Do you have a, a, a vision for that? For, he's got purpose for you, brothers and sisters. He's got purpose for your life. And it, it, it might be to go make a lot of money. It might be, and, and to give it away. I've got uh, know someone who does that. It might be to, to go overseas. It might be to stay home. But I suggest to you that he's always got something for you in the local church. He's always got something for you in the local church to do. Do you have a vision for the ministry that God has for you? How are you ministering to other believers now? What does that look like in your life? Do you have a vision? How are you ministering? I want to close, if you turn with me, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12. Paul writes this. He says, and he, that's Jesus, gave the apostles, that's those who are sent, the apostles, the prophets, we've seen prophets, we've seen some apostolic ministry, those who are sent, those who start new things, the evangelists, we've seen those, the shepherds, 
the teachers. We've seen that in Barnabas and Paul. We've seen all of those gifts at work, gifted people coming to start a church and bring it through to maturity. Jesus gave all of those, why? In verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so what that meant for the church in Antioch is that God sent those people at various stages so that they could train and teach and and bring into maturity healthy disciples who could do the same work. Do that work, the work of evangelism, the work of encouragement and teaching, the work of, of, of bringing to maturity, if you will. And so in our church, we have people, we're, we're a small group, but we have people who are gifted in different areas, but we're all called to be involved in each one of these areas. We're all called to be part of evangelism. And that's a big, broad thing. That's not just coming out and doing the book table on Monday morning. That might be reaching out to your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus and building relationship. And at some point you get the opportunity to say, yeah, I, I go to church on Sunday. It's really encouraging. And maybe it starts there. Maybe you get a chance to share with a colleague at the right time. It's a big, broad thing, but we're all called to be part of telling other people about Jesus. That's what evangelism is, introducing people to Jesus. We're all called to be part of seeing disciples grow and mature in that adolescent phase, and we're all called to be part of seeing disciples become mature and having ministry of their own. That's why Paul says Jesus gave those gifted people to each individual church. And so my challenge for each of us is some of us are gifted in one area or two areas. It's probably one of those areas where you're less comfortable. Perhaps you're downright scared about evangelism. Perhaps you, you, don't, you, just, you don't have the time for, to talk someone through stuff and it's like, ah, I don't have the patience for that. It's harder for you. But we're all called to be involved in each stage. And so my challenge is, let's start thinking like that together. That's the vision for ministry of our church. Amen?